The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. I'm very pleased to introduce the panel session, Digital Connections and our speakers. The session chair, Dr. Kristen Alford, is a futurist, well-placed to chair this panel, and director at MOD at University of South Australia. She holds a PhD in process engineering and a master's in management in strategic foresight. She's a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a fellow of the Governor's Leadership Foundation. In our panel... Connell Lee is a writer and philosopher who has completed theses at honours, masters and doctoral level and published in several journals in the area of pandemic ethics. I can hardly say the word pandemic. (laughs) He is currently writer in residence as part of the Guildhouse and City of Adelaide Artworks program. And Adam Drogmuller is a PhD student and researcher working at the Australian Research Centre for Interactive and Virtual Environments. His specialist topics are human-computer interaction and virtual reality. Thank you all for being here this afternoon. It's a rare opportunity to hear from three deep thinkers working within the field of connectivity and to contemplate the complex duality of digital connection. So, Kristen, I'd like to express my thanks to you and hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Debbie. I think this is a really interesting topic and kind of a year out from peak pandemic is a really good time for us to kind of reflect back on on what that was like and what we've learnt since. And also, you know, from the perspective of, of, of what are we going to take on board and what, what has changed and what are we expecting to unfold into the future? And so I thought I'd just start by reflecting a little bit on what we were doing this time last year. And I suspect around this time last year, we probably were talking to you, Connell, because what we did when we um, went into lockdown was to obviously close the gallery spaces here at MOD. And to make sure that we're preserving casual employment, you know, many people working with us um, have part-time roles in arts industry, we switched to online and we started to do an online exhibition, which we turned around very quickly and produced 64 episodes of online TV pretty much between April and August. And and Connell was one of our guests at, at the time, kind of as a way of, as I said, preserving employment, but also maintain that connection with a young adult audience um, and with a community to really reach out and, and make sense of that. So I guess I guess I might start with you, Connell, and kind of thinking about where where do you see that we are at with digital connection now in the mainstream, and what what do you see that might have changed, and and what are the what are the sorts of things you're observing? Thank you, Kristen. I think that what we've seen. I mean, first of all, just the change in in, in our language as well. Just talking about zoom i mean that word had a completely different sense and meaning this time last year and now you say to somebody i've got a zoom this afternoon and um, they know exactly what you mean i think that it's been you know obviously fantastic that we've been able to um and and mod's been one of the sort of uh, institutions i think that's done a really good job of you know we don't i don't want to use this word too much because it's been used so much but it has been agile in the face of, uh, of uncertainty and that's exactly what happens with a, with a pandemic is that uncertainty comes along and we don't know what's going to happen. And um, we become, um, you know, disconnected from one another because of the fact that we can almost pose a threat to one another because that's the nature of infectious diseases. You know, we are, uh, you know, someone who's infected with a disease is both a victim of the disease and a vector and they can, um, they can pose a threat to others. So we necessarily need 
to socially isolate. We necessarily need to have things like like lockdowns. And one way of of making sure that we're not overly disconnected from one another um, is to use these digital means. And I've certainly seen my uh, social media usage go up. Um, and um, certainly in the context of universities, we've seen a lot more, you know, resources going online. Also, it's not just the case of, you know, now I record my lectures online. You know, you need to sort of make the, the online space dynamic. And I think that's something that we're going to continue to sort of evolve as we go, particularly in education, uh, but in other areas as well. We need to make it that it's not just the case of you're watching a video recording, but that there's some sort of interaction going on or that it's at least maybe immersive might be a better word for it. I think that quality of interactive and immersive is a really good kind of place to to bring Adam in as well because thinking about how you give the online space a, a sense of three-dimensionality as opposed to kind of a just a screen-based kind of experience. So so Adam, I might ask you the same sort of question just to just to kind of get us on, a, on an even footing. But if you're looking at digital connection now in the mainstream, and especially the sort of work that you might have might have been doing, what are you observing? And and was there anything specific that surprised you out of the pandemic? Well, I think where we're kind of heading to is we're trying to make people feel more co-located. So the problem with like just being on Zoom, I'm just talking to everyone through a two-dimensional webcam, which is kind of unnatural and a bit weird. So I think where we're heading to is, yeah, trying to make people feel more like they're in the same space. And then it's just figuring out exactly how we do that. So yeah, VR is definitely one approach that we can take. And there's potential benefits to using VR outside of just using Zoom, because there's this whole idea around Zoom fatigue and potentially, you know, using Zoom is more, um, there's more cognitive load and mental effort being exerted just by being on Zoom in comparison to being and talking to people in person. So I think that's that's kind of interesting to where we're heading towards. The, the other thing I, I, I thought was interesting as well is that in some ways, though, VR is is high touch, <laughs> you know, especially if you're doing it with, with other people. So just thinking about that almost contradiction at the heart of, of some of this digital physical kind of work, you know, to, to, do, to do VR, you're often supervised in an area where you are in close contact with someone, so I, th I think that 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 contradiction is really interesting. Are there any any of any? I mean, we talked a little bit about contradictions, I guess, already in terms of you know how do we make it dynamic and interactive. But is there anything, um, is there anything else like that that you're noticing? These real sort of um, tensions that kind of sit at, at how we might be using digital. Well, I guess yeah, there is that problem of like everyone using VR in the same space. But the way I kind of envision it, envision it is you're in like a room. And another person is in that room, but then they're not actually, you know, in that room, like co-located with you. They're like on another side of the world or like in another area of the city. Yeah. And kind of trying to replicate that same feeling of being with them in that space. So um, one of the really weird things about Zoom that I found is if you're in a Zoom call with 10 different people, you're kind of talking to 10 different people at the same time. Uh, whereas if you're in a room and you're talking to someone, you're kind of present in that room and other people are aware of, aware of you, but you're not talking to all 10 people at once. Um, so there's, there's this kind of weird uh, continuum where you're talking in a public space and a private space. And like in reality, you kind of travel along that continuum. So if I'm in a public space and I'm talking to someone, and maybe if I overhear someone else talking about a topic that I'm really interested in, and I feel like I can add to that conversation within, you know, within reason, 
And I can basically travel to that other group of people and then actually engage in that conversation. And actually doing that through Zoom is a bit more difficult because you kind of, you can have breakout rooms, but you kind of just like zip in and zip out of those rooms, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. It reminds me a little bit of the of the type of platforms. And I don't know if anybody's seen the stuff that's come out for Splendor XR, which is happening in late July, where Splendor and the Grass is basically doing their, their festival on an online platform. But the 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 process for that is that you can choose an avatar and then wander around a, a 3D space. And I've seen a couple of these mechanisms where, you know, as you then get closer to others in the 3D space, you can start to have conversations. And there might be, you know, people all over the space, but you're only chatting with maybe the five people that are around you in that circle. Um, but you can see that there are bunches of other avatars having conversations in in other places. So I, I think that that question about the broadcast, the publicness of, of some of the digital platforms versus the ability to have both private and public conversations like you might get in a, in a city square is a is a really interesting thing. Anything you wanted to add to that, Connell? I'm just thinking, I'm thinking from a philosophical point of view, that's actually fascinating, this notion of public versus private spectrum of, of space. Yeah, I, I think the um, the actual experience of putting on this, uh, you know, this VR kind of uh, yeah, helmet or whatever it might actually be, however it might play out, is kind of philosophically interesting in, in and of itself. I mean, I can't help but imagine that, you, you know, you know that you're not actually, that it is a virtual reality, you know, you're not sort of uh, fooled into thinking that you are actually in this, this kind of space. So there's kind of a duality of like, I know I'm sitting in the real world, I'm sitting here in this chair in my, in my house or wherever it might be, but then I'm sort of being projected into this kind of um, alternate kind of world or, or you know, reality, if you will, which to me seems almost quite existential. You know, I, could actually, I could actually have an existential nightmare within, within that context. Where do I exist? And if I spent enough time in that virtual reality, uh, what might happen to my brain or my mind or my sense of self uh, within that? I think I could be, um, there could be some unpredictable consequences of that that might be worth thinking about. Yeah, yeah. And then there's that idea of um, like maybe if you have memories, do you actually have memories of being in VR? Like do you remember walking around that space in virtual reality? And then do you actually confuse that with reality potentially sometimes? And that's kind of one weird thing I felt like last year in particular, like instead of meeting people in person, I was meeting them through Zoom. So I had a lot of memories of just meeting people and then seeing them for the first time on a webcam, which is really strange. Um, so yeah, there's kind of a weird element there, I feel. Yeah, no, you're reminding me of a, of a recent meeting I had with a, with a group of people I originally got to meet in um, Amsterdam in, in late 2019. Small group of people, about 30 of us. It was like a three-day intensive and it was really fantastic. Um, and then I've been catching up with them on Zoom maybe once every couple of months. And, and you know, at the last meeting, we kind of said goodbye and I, I left feeling really sad. And I thought, this is so this is so weird that I've got such an emotional response to kind of saying goodbye. And it, it feels like I, I'm about to leave for the airport, you know, in that kind of wistful, not wanting to leave a space kind of feeling. But, the, but I have not moved. I'm in the same space as I was 10 minutes ago. And I, I found that quite startling. So I think, you know, in some ways we're, we're grappling with these with these new kind of emotional connections to, to, to things. It reminds me of a cartoon I saw the other day, which was 
two lovers facing each other for the first time, having met in the pandemic online and about to remove each other's masks for the first time and really see each other in the flesh. <laughs> I just thought there's, some, there's something so strange about that merging of, of, of even in the physical, we've still got kind of these, these barriers in, in many parts of the world. But I, I guess I'm also thinking then around, you know, what, what do we anticipate happening perhaps, you know, in, if you think about our, our use of digital across the last 10 to 20 years and the and the type of reliance we might have on, you know, tracking devices or phones or, you know, having access to video or, and we're thinking about sort of some of the things that we're thinking about at the moment in terms of maybe being able to put ourselves in different worlds with VR. What are the kind of things that you, you know, think you might be able to anticipate around how we might be connecting with each other through the digital and, and how do we create human connection? What, what are some of the things that you're seeing? Well, one project that we're working on is we're looking at putting data scientists in the same space in our virtual reality. Yeah, one of, the, one of the purposes of that is like, if there's a lockdown and they need to explain some data that they have, they can essentially have the same people in the same room. But there's also that interesting, fantastical element of VR that you can't have in the real world. So one thing that they can actually do in VR is visualize their data mid-air instead of just like on a screen. So it's kind of interesting how potentially you can add on to reality and complement it with kind of these, I guess, out of this world kind of, I don't know, elements and things, which is kind of, yeah, kind of something that I can see happening. I really like that idea of additive reality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thinking about the different layers we might on. What about you, Connor? What sort of what sort of things are you sort of seeing? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a child of the 1980s. So, I mean, I find I grew up with thinking that uh, this sort of technology was something I wouldn't even see in my lifetime. I mean, in the 80s, we all thought that the height of where we were going technologically was things like the hoverboard and the idea that technology couldn't get further than like, you know, being able to go a couple of inches off the ground on a skateboard was going to be like where we were at. And we've talked about virtual reality for, for many, many years. And of course, you sort of see these things becoming, I suppose, more and more sophisticated. And of course, it's not my, my area, so I can't really sort of say where I sort of necessarily see technological advancements going. But I don't necessarily see philosophy playing catch up when with new technologies come along. I mean, I look back at what we were talking about 20 years ago in philosophy around the creation of echo chambers online and things like this. And then it's more or less played out as we, we kind of anticipated. But virtual reality is uh, was kind of philosophically interesting when it was kind of talked about as almost creating an empathy machine of some sort, that, that what you could do with virtual reality is um, quite effectively walk in the shoes of other people, that it could actually do something to help develop that sort of humanitarian side of our brain or, or something like this, that it could you know, put you in the position of um, a war zone or something like this and give you, you know, that immersive experience, that, you know, that real flavour of what it would be like to be in that sort of situation. And in Australia, we've done fairly okay with the pandemic, but other countries like India and the US and the UK have not done so well. And we might imagine the ways in which we could perhaps use uh, virtual reality to kind of get a taste for, you know, what it's like to be in places where it's more of a, of a crisis, or indeed, you know, generally, for example, Things that we've seen recently going on in the Gaza Strip, you know, we could use virtual reality to develop people's uh, empathy and understanding of what it might be like to to, to live as a, as a Palestinian in a, in a war zone, for example. Also reminds me because since November I've been spending a lot of time on TikTok, but I find it really fascinating from kind of a 
I guess an academic perspective, but you know, when when the when the bombing was occurring in in Gaza, there were quite a lot of small videos coming up on my TikTok page of people live, you know, people videoing themselves and videoing, you know, the 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 shaking of the of the house and things, and then running to basements out of, and that's that's right in front of me on my phone, unmediated by news or opinion. You know, it's fairly confronting because I don't I don't actually know whether that is true or not you know it's a bit of digging to go is, is this actually somebody's real experience or is it a is it somebody else trying to push a push an opinion and, and for all purposes I think it probably was somebody's real experience that they were videoing and sharing but that to me is also you know another way that we're seeing this very immediate kind of uh, close human contact that is slightly different again to the mechanisms we talk about which is either you know live action through a through a zoom or through vr where you're actually in the space it's it's asynchronous and it's still screen mediated but it also provides a level of empathy or human connection that we might not get through some of the more traditional media means so i i found that quite fascinating i think if we, if we look at the way that we probably have all kind of adapted fairly quickly <laughs> to online and i'm thinking about things like you know not just my levels of tiktok consumption which are probably in in high need of some intervention but also the the kind of almost the very resilient you know nature of being able to bounce into into home and you know a couple of you are working from home um, as we speak um, I'm thinking about people in Melbourne at the moment you know going back to lockdown and reverting to work from home um, kind of instances and that seemed like a fairly a fairly sort of swift adjustment. I'm just wondering about how we how we think about that continuing in the future. Are we expecting kind of this online life like this to be sustainable? Are we expecting that people would just kind of revert to what they were doing pre-pandemic given the chance or or do you see people kind of reaching for something which is a bit more hybrid? What are you seeing? I can say something. Yeah, yeah. go Connell. Um so, I mean, recently, just in the last three weeks, I did a conference where we had people from Africa, Southeast Asia, Central Asia and Australia all at the same place at once, uh, other than my conference fee and my internet connection. It was it was a fairly low-cost endeavour, you know, whereas in the past that would have been an incredibly expensive outlay. You've got to get flights and you've got to get accommodation and all these kind of things. And you might not necessarily help, be helped out by your institution to go and attend a conference, so it could all be out of your own pocket. So we're seeing some, you know, inequalities in access to things like conferences and other sorts of um, forums, you know, being addressed quite effectively. So we're seeing a broadening potentially of the sorts of voices that we might have at, at a conference. So that's obviously a very good thing. Uh, I suspect we'll see sort of a hybrid emerge. And as we have gotten better at using Zoom and gotten better at doing online as a, a means of delivering, for example, in education, develop, uh, delivering um, topics and things like this, but there is a kind of a, a desire for things to go back to normal. And on the one hand, it's understandable, but on the other, it's it's a case of people take, wanting to take on potential unnecessary risks or risks that are too high. Merely need to look at how the AFL has been trying so hard to get back to business as usual that we're actually putting athletes in position of risk. It's almost like we expect AFL footballers, like the Adelaide Crows have to go out and play against Collingwood this weekend the possibility that the Collingwood players are um, <laughs> infected. And we've got Nicola Spurrier talking about dodging the football if it comes into the crowd because it might have coronavirus on it or something odd. It seems that very straight, this desire to get back to life uh, as normal uh, has seemed to be pushing us in an odd direction when perhaps we should just take a step back and say, well, look, you know, we can temporarily not do things. 
such that we can, um, you know, obviously it's very hard to do a virtual football match, but, you know, if we want to actually go back to that, we have to, you know, mitigate risk a little bit. Yeah, I think there's also that whole problem around, like, Zoom fatigue, um, which has been a term that's been thrown around quite a bit. I guess, like, yeah, communicating online just reminds So I'm kind of wondering if post-pandemic, if people kind of move further away from Zoom because it reminds them of, like, a, a bad error in, in their lives. There's also kind of the weird thing as well where your mobility is reduced because you're always kind of just sitting in front of a computer. And to say that, like, when we move around and we think we're actually more creative instead of just standing in, in space and actually utilizing space makes us more creative and makes us think out things a lot more and just, I guess, constantly seeing yourself. So you've basically always got like a mirror in front of you. So yeah, there's potentially a lot of negative mental health effects around Zoom as well that I think needs, needs to be addressed somehow. Like I've heard some people talking about like actually removing it so you can't see yourself while you're talking. So you become less self-conscious. Yeah, and also having like Zoom meetings without video. So you're less focused on other people's body language and you're more focused on a conversation. And um, yeah, one of the weird things about uh, Zoom, as I'm talking, I'm using different gestures. Um, those gestures aren't as apparent to people through video and it kind of requires more cognitive effort to actually interpret the gestures that I'm using. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits around Zoom for sure, but there's also a lot of issues that need to be addressed. Yeah, I think your comment about mirroring is interesting. I gave a, I gave a talk last night to the Global Foresight Summit, um, and because of the way my screen was set up, when I, when I pressed go on my slides, I could no longer see myself or, yeah. or the host, which was fine. I was just talking at my slides by myself in the office at 7 o'clock at night, and I felt very, very odd, you know, that there was nothing tethering me. There was, you know, there's no feedback in my ears, you know, I... I, I I'm not connected to the audience. I'm not connected to the host anymore. And that kind of weird sort of disconnect, I think, is a, is an interesting. And, and I think, you know, Connell, you started the conversation by talking in change of language and the uptake of, you know, using Zoom as a verb as well as a, you know, a, a process and not just the name of, name of the company. But, you know, I wonder what the new language for these kind of feelings that we're talking about, you know, that feeling of, you know, dissociation you get after staring at your mirror image for, for hours on end when you're on a Zoom call or what, what kind of new language helps us articulate these very peculiar kind of online emotions. Have you got any others, Connell? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but any other any uh, other good language words? Maybe Zoomomycetisis or something like this that we <laughs> might get from uh, maybe we need a little bit more chair yoga in our lives as well. I can already feel that. Maybe we could actually all be on exercise bikes while we're on Zoom as well, just for the you know, get the, get the, I mean, when you go for a walk, you do get both sides of the brain kind of working together. I think it was Nietzsche who said that no good idea has ever been come up with, which hasn't been walked on. You know, you need to go for a walk to, to get your brain going and, you know, to clear your head. So I think that the way in which we engage with screens, I mean, we get up in the morning, we look at our phone, uh, we put on the television, we look at our laptops. We, we Zoom all day and then, you know, we relax at the end of the day by watching Netflix or something like this. I mean, um, we need a break from our screens and we need to balance that. We know that physical activity is good for our mental health, you know, so we need to have that physical activity in our lives. I think it's a really curious thing to think about is, is just that nexus of, of work and activity. And so I'm, I'm thinking back to what you were saying a bit earlier, Adam, about, about the idea of being you know, being in a space and moving around a space with VR. 
you know, and I'm, you know, in one part of my mind, I, I'm picturing kind of being tethered to something, but I know that that's not how VR works. You don't need to be tethered. You've got freedom to kind of work, walk around and work through a space. So I wonder if, you know, the, the, the space that we're in is kind of just a holding pattern for what happens next, which is actually being able to be physically moving around a space while we're talking to people kind of in that, in that VR mix that you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because like when you start moving away from the desktop, you can actually start utilizing, I guess, the space as, as like a desktop medium. Like you could have like a physical trash can and you can work with other people and you might have an idea and you say, oh, this is a bad idea. And then you scrunch it up and then throw it in a, in a bin or something like that. And there's all these like crazy metaphors that you can assign that you can't do through a desktop screen. So I think, yeah, that'd be pretty interesting in the future. And I think that's hopefully or potentially where we're moving towards as like more and more companies are starting to adopt um, VR and, and AR, especially with like, got a prop, for example. So this one here isn't tethered to a computer. So you can basically have it on your head and then move around. So there's no requirement to have like a big beefy machine right next to you and you're not crossing wires over with other people and all these weird other social issues. But yeah, there is still that kind of weirdness when you have VR on and people outside of VR can see you moving around and they have no idea what you're doing and there's that weird disconnect. So I think that's still something we need to overcome to actually make VR more accessible and more adoptable. Yeah, and I'm fascinated by that that idea of using new metaphors because, again, one of the things that I've gotten from my deep TikTok obsession is an understanding that um, in talking, a lot of the language, showing my age now, but a lot, of, a lot of the language I find has many meanings at once. And so a gesture will mean two dichotomous kind of conversations. So it might mean I'm being vulnerable at the same time as I'm a hard-ass, you know, bitch and you can't come at me. And both of those things are, are true, right? And I, and I, I think there's an interesting kind of shortcut of a, of a gesture or in TikTok a song or what you've just said, Adam, a, a new metaphor that comes from a new way in which when we see technology and often in futures work, we look for those underpinning metaphors to help us, you know, articulate what the pattern is that we're in and then change the metaphor to see if we can change the pattern and come up with something new. So I'm really fascinated by that kind of mimetic shortcut metaphoric kind of language that might emerge from, from new ways of working in a, in a new space, which is physically moving around with a, with a digital layer, which is quite different to either the physical or the Zoom kind of digital that we've been talking about. I'm just, I'm just, so I'm, I'm running through some of the metaphors that we might use at, at work now and wondering what some of those other patterns of, of interaction. Yeah. Are. I think that's a really fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting because like initially the desktop metaphor was derived from like a desktop, like where I'm working and now we're kind of the computer moved into that metaphor. Now we're kind of moving away from it back into reality, which is really strange. Yeah, it's interesting that that's kind of the trend of where we're headed at, that we actually like use that metaphor and now we're actually taking it back a step, if that kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah. And I've had people talking about why we still use the, you know, a hard disk as a symbol for saving. saving yeah, yeah, the, the floppy disk. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I see that Emma's just asked us a question about the the idea of relation to physical and growth of interest in NFTs, and that that's a that's a big a big thing to unpack. But I think one of the things that we haven't yet talked about is is this idea of kind of the you know value in the digital 
digital world and so it's not just around using it as a as a medium for exchange of communication but also you know also thinking about new ways in which we might grow economies or exchange value or or that so I don't know I, I guess I first I'll ask either if you if you've got much knowledge about NFTs or if there's anything that you'd like to like to contribute uh define NFT again so non non-fungible tokens so the idea that you might I mean I think for me, I, I really liked the description of um, Mark Pesci, who's a who's a futurist and tech writer based in Sydney. And um, I read an article of Mark's where he was talking about what you're doing with a non-fungible token is you're basically getting a piece of digital art. You're wrapping up that piece of digital art in a digital layer, and then somebody is buying the wrapper, essentially, oh, yeah. to say, I, I own the wrapper for this piece of art. And, you know, that's a that's an individual kind of limited edition wrapper for the for the piece of art I find it a little bit hard to wrap my head around because you're not actually owning the art per se you're just owning the certificate or the wrapper for the art so I think that's really interesting I think it's interesting if we can find a way in which artists work can be recognized and valued online and exchanged online because digital art I think is difficult to do that so I mean I'm thinking of a uh, an artist called Victoria Modesta, who's well known for uh, a video, um, which is a smooth, shiny surface, and she comes out in this amazing high heel, in which the heel is like a, a dagger point, and she's spinning on the dagger point, and it's beautiful and mesmerising. But I can probably YouTube, Google it, and I can watch it without any value really going back to the artist. And I guess the idea around an NFT is that by selling the wrapper to that art to someone who can say they own the wrapper for that work and that becomes an exchangeable item, there's some there's some point of value to go back to the back to the artist. So that's probably the extent of my knowledge on NFTs. If you have anything else to add, Connell? Oh, I, I think, I suppose, you know, again, from that sort of philosophical standpoint, uh, when we think about what it means to own something generally, we think, you know, I own a cup. That means I get to use the cup. I get to control who uses the cup. If I, I get to sell the cup and get profit for it, or, or even more broadly, I'm allowed to smash that cup if I want to. We tend to think, of course, that there are limits on what you can do when you, when you own a piece of art. You can't go on necessarily, we think it would be a, a violation of the, of the rights of the, the artist if you were to take home a painting and you know change those purple spots into green spots or something like this to paint over the Mona Lisa or something like that. Um, but we also think that you'd have an obligation, a sort of a social responsibility as an owner of something like this to you know exhibit it from time to time and to make sure that it's not just closed off from society. I'm not entirely sure how these NFTs kind of work and how that might relate to those kind of potential obligations that we would have you know, to display art on occasion, but also it comes with the responsibility to preserve art. And I suppose that that's interesting once art's in a digital space, it's kind of, you know, it's preserved. You don't have to like temperature control it and all this kind of stuff to make sure that uh, it doesn't get affected by the elements and all this sort of stuff. So I think it's it's broadly interesting from uh, the philosophy of ownership standpoint and uh, perhaps not easily, <laughs> easily solved. And look, I think the other big ethical question it's just around the environmental impact of Bitcoin, blockchain, NFT mining, and the fact that, you know, if, if that isn't done in a way that uses green energy, it's using, you know, it's a, it's a big fossil fuel contributor. And in fact, I think that's probably true for any of our digital life. The, the sort of stuff that we store in the cloud requires, you know, server power to deliver, you know, these functions back to us. You know, at the same time, it's making things more convenient. Are we 
I think that's a really interesting question. Are we also actually making the environment worse? And what's our obligation when we're thinking about big social change that might come out of a disruption like a pandemic? Um, and we're thinking about maybe some of the impacts that work from home might have in terms of maybe aiding environmental impact by reducing commutes and reducing footprints and all, all, of, all of that sort of thing. And yet at the same time, we're actually just increasing our service space um, and putting just as much carbon up into the air. I think that's a really, you know, it's a really a difficult question to, to grapple with. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of people in my circle concerned about the idea of NFTs because it seems like a really ethically challenging kind of thing to invent something that actually is causing a bunch of environmental damage and others looking for the opportunity in, in terms of how you might actually do that in a way that's that's green and sustainable to see if it solves problems. I noticed that Cynthia's just said there's a you know general shift in ownership towards participation, which I think is also interesting from the conversation we've just had about, you know, the TikTok platform about, you know, that's that's not sort of, I mean, you can be a passive consumer of that, but really the value comes through people participating in the platform and people generating art forms, the the value of attending a Splendor XR becomes, you know, in the fact that you're not just watching the performer, but you're interacting with the other avatars in the in the space. And that 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 tension again that we've talked about between, you know, the broadcast medium of of a screen versus the participatory, I think is is quite a quite an interesting tension as well. Is there anything, I mean, the other thing that's coming to mind for me is is that is that most most futurists certainly would would not be expecting this pandemic to be the last. So even if we would return to a, a new normal by 2023, you know, I'm reading a bunch of short stories which have some other virus of, you know, the virus of 25 or the virus of 2032 <laughs> in them. And I think we would expect because of the way that we are globally networked and interconnected at the, you know, pre-COVID and because of the way we have got rapid urbanisation, we are increasing the conditions for, for pandemic-like diseases to occur, that this, this isn't perhaps a, a blip and a disruption, but might be indications of a new normal. So I'm just wondering if there's any sort of um, final comments before we go to questions about, you know, what does, what does the intersection of, you know, adjusting to these types of disruptions and digital development, is there, is there anything curious emerging out of that or things that we should be thinking about for the future, Connell? Yeah, well, I think back in uh, the early sort of thousands up to when I finished my PhD in 2012, 2013, we were thinking more around uh, probably a new strain of influenza, so something like the Spanish flu, something probably with a you know highly infectious, high mortality rate. We, I don't think anyone really thought it was going to be a coronavirus. Certainly pandemics are just part of human existence. Infectious diseases are part of human existence. So that standard kind of message that it's a case of, you know, when a pandemic's going to emerge, not if, probably remains that kind of, you know, you know, stay alert. And we probably will see future kind of instances of this. And we need to be mindful of that. And one thing we knew prior to this whole pandemic, though, was that not only do these diseases have the potential to cause, you know, huge amounts of suffering and to, to kill lots of people, but it has the potential to exacerbate existing inequalities. And it's precisely what we've seen. There's no, no surprises. Um, we've seen companies like Amazon having $8 billion you know, profit margins. And we've seen people plunged into deeper poverty in parts of the world. So as we go forward, we need to not only you know, kind of try and rein in some of these inequalities, to rethink some of the ways in which power is distributed, you know, both domestically and internationally. Can we really keep you know, is it really sustainable to have the sorts of um, political and economic systems that we currently have? I mean, 
countries that fare better in pandemics are ones that are more equal, where resources are distributed more equally, where power is distributed more equally, where the, the most vulnerable groups have access to important social resources. So as we go forward, I think we need to think about, you know, we've got this added challenge now of reining in some of the inequalities that are potentially going to get out of hand and to make sure that wealth disparities don't become you know, too vast. It also addresses one of Cynthia's questions. Adam, any final comments from you about what what you what you think is important for the for the future? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just on what Connor was saying about kind of a gap between the poor and the wealthy. Like I was reading an article uh, this morning about Israel and students having to share the same computer to attend a class to get education, and that's like kind of a huge problem more wealthy people down there can actually have like students get their own computers and they can get their own education. Whereas people in poorer areas usually used to be able to go to school and just attend in person. And now some of them who don't have the technology to participate in a class now, they can't do it. So I think, yeah, we need to adjust for that somehow. Um, And that's, yeah, a huge problem to get around. Yeah, that's kind of my final thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. And I remember, you know, that the video off that you mentioned earlier is then really important because the social inequity becomes visible when you're zooming into somebody's private house um, and you can see the conditions in which which they live. And those 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 things were quite stark for, for classes when video was kind of assumed to be compulsory and, and that's sort of been relaxed. And I guess the only other final thing I was going to say was that, you know, I think it's it's really interesting to think about whether we're solving the right problems. So, and I don't know how true this is, but I an article the other day that said that Amazon was solving the the mental health problems of its employees by inserting an Amazon portable meditation booth. Hadn't thought about giving toilet breaks, but we're happy to put in a, a portable meditation booth. And so I think some of the temptations that we've got in the adoption of you know technology or, or or well-being solutions or green solutions or things like NFTs are you know a solution in search of the of a very wrong problem. So I think that's the other kind of philosophical challenge for us as we navigate between the digital post-pandemic world is to make sure we're innovating for the right for the right problems. So yeah, I just wanted to finish up then by saying thanks, thanks Connell and Adam for the contribution during the chat. I'm I've got all sorts of thoughts and um, I'm, I, I really enjoyed listening to them. So I'm just going to hand back over to you now, Debbie, to, to see if there's any questions we can. Thank you so much. I have a question which I might um, start and if anyone else has any other questions they want to pop in, they can. Adam, I'm really interested in the VR um, headset that you just uh, showed us earlier. And I'm wondering where you think the future of VR lies in in the mainstream? How accessible will it be? Obviously, it's really big in the gaming world, but surely there are other applications that are um, being you know designed or, or planned for. Can you um, tell us a little bit maybe about your your plans or where you see the future of VR really going? One of the the things I kind of envision is, I guess, the virtual world becoming like a utility in a household. So like you go around a room and there'd be a bathroom and a bedroom, but then maybe there would be like a, a virtual room and then you go in there and you can actually have your remote communications and that's sort of like your workspace. And that kind of already exists for some people who have virtual reality, they have their own setup space at home. Um, so I kind of see like the digital starting to become more like a utility, like um, electricity and water that kind of becomes incorporated into a house, I think. But that's, yeah, probably a really, really far, far way away. Kind of like a, a formulation of the, um, the, the holodeck from Star Trek in, in some respect. But probably not exactly like that, I think. 
And what do you see people using it for, like general connection or like I, I guess I'm thinking a little bit, and this is super outdated, but things like Second Life and I remember working at a gallery at the time when Second Life was really big in like 2010 and we rebuilt our gallery in Second Life with the same artworks and interacted with people within Second Life while we were also in the gallery and it was quite a yeah, kind of echo chamber in a really, in a way, but also really different experiences in both spaces. So what kind of um, interactions are people accessing, do you think, in the future or now? Yeah, like definitely social interactions, probably entertainment like video games and potentially narratives as well. Um, potentially we might move away from film into spatial narratives somehow. Also audio, like music, mm-hmm. um, performances. I'm not sure about like document writing because that's kind of like how do you how would you actually do that using gestures and controllers that's kind of a whole problem in itself but yeah potentially moving towards like a workspace yeah where people can collaborate and think yeah there's a lot of directions that we could head in I think. Thank you. I also agree with your comment about gestures I feel like I've become very exaggerated when I'm in this world there's a lot of which I wouldn't normally do and those kind of things. So yeah, I really agree with that. I don't see any other questions coming through, but I will make one little um, other observational question towards Kristen. Um, thank you for mentioning the Splendor Online. It's really interesting to see, you know, what that model will become. We um, had a little dabble in a platform called Gather Town, which I don't know whether you know that one. It's a very, very much like an 80s um game where it's kind of aerial and you you kind of your little avatar walks from room to room and as you get closer to people your video turns on and you can hear and see them and it was such an incredible social kind of experiment in some ways because it was a great way to get curators from around Australia in the room with local artists and it kind of took away the nervousness of meeting someone new because you were spending so much time figuring out the tech and you were all kind of going, what is this? What is this world we're in? So it was kind of quite disarming in a really lovely way. Yeah, and I think, look, I think that's really, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I've had a quick look at Gather Town and thought it looked pretty cool, really. But I also thought it looked a little bit like Animal Crossing um, because, you know, part of what we were doing last year during MOD was was live gaming and Animal Crossing was one of those games. And actually Animal Crossing was one of those things that, that people found incredibly soothing when you're kind of stuck at home to kind of build a community on Animal Crossing and, and visit your friends on Animal Crossing and and, and do and do that kind of kind of space. And so I do wonder a little bit around the, you know, the the competencies as, as we get more sort of comfortable mm. you know, in those type of worlds and creating them and, and whether there's a, like a, yeah, as, as Adam was saying before, like a, a new kind of set of metaphors that, you know, we're no longer thinking about the desktop, but we're thinking about the, the animal crossing landscape in terms of perhaps the way that we work. And I also think something else you just said there was good because you were, you were talking about, you know, thinking about the technical requirements and trying to get across all of those. And I was listening to this talk again at the Global Foresight conference last night where they were talking about there was a the short conversation about a I think a pastor uh, who you know they were talking about how religions had adapted in the pandemic and how they'd moved services and spiritual communities online and one of the reflections I, I you know I'm not, I'm not quite sure of the religious denomination so I might have the terminology wrong but one of the reflections from the pastor was that he had said he was so busy making sure his mic was on that the camera was ready that you know and thinking about the technical support that he never felt like he was able to get into the spiritual sense. And so he was he was busy kind of tending to the technical needs of the congregation, but he never felt like he was fully spiritually connected like he would have been 
in person. And the question there was like, well, who's doing tech support for him to enable the spiritual connection? Mm. And I think that that's also, I just thought that was such an interesting conversation in terms of, you know, we're now expecting all of us to be able to run a Zoom and live stream or something or other and know how to know how to do Gather Town and, and all of that sort of stuff. But what if that stops us from actually making the human connection? And when that's really critical, how do we make sure that we're supporting people to be able to make those really critical human connections like mm. spirituality? So mm. I thought that was that was a really like a, a really new conversation that I hadn't heard people articulate. Um, As um, Emma has mentioned, we did notice some um, anxiety from people within that platform because they didn't know how to turn on their camera or their mic and we were as staff kind of fielding phone calls and emails of people going how do I work this thing while we were in the platform and it was chaotic and hilarious and really fun and really um, disorienting in kind of a good way but also there were some people that were kind of like this is too hectic I just want to try and meet that curator and introduce my artwork to them and I really can't meaningfully connect because I have I can't get my avatar to work or my internet is really slow and I'm lagging <laughs> so yeah. I'm speeding past them once I finally catch up or <laughs> you know so it um yeah or even like a conversation I had um earlier in the week which was around you know I haven't done a heap of zooms because we've been face-to-face back in galleries mm-hmm. and I've I've forgotten how to change between my computer audio and the usb audio i'd forgotten how to do that and and the person i was talking to said you know she's suffering from the zoom teams interface swapping where the buttons are all in different places and when you've got a bunch of them it's like you know and again that you know that zoom fatigue is one thing but that kind of you know we our brain makes those human shortcuts to Mm -hmm. save us thinking energy and when when those kind of shortcuts are being challenged because there's an update or a slightly different platform. It is it is exhausting. I think it doesn't. Come and I think that's a common conversation within organisations as well. Is that um, that fatigue of learning new things, keeping up with new things, adapting to platforms, and the emotional kind of fatigue of of keeping up with all of all of those things. I feel really old as I say that. But I mean, I think that's that's we assume that young people will jump into technologies and that they mm. will adapt and that they'll go with the flow and that it'll you know that it'll become part of you know just the way that they think. But you know, if that's true, why do we have such increasing amounts of young youth mental health? That's and right. why is that one of the things that the Children and Young People's Commissioner is so concerned about? And so I think there is you know, and I think Adam raised it earlier, there is that question about are we actually creating a healthy digital world? Or are we just doing stuff without thinking and making stuff worse? Well, that's a positive note to end the session on. <laughs> so if anyone has any other comments or any questions that they'd like to mention, but um, other than that, thank you so much, Kristen, Connell and Adam, for joining us. It's been a delight to get your insights into the future and to um, where we're heading and what we're experiencing. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.